Greetings, Ghost Family. Welcome back to our FamGo Show summer bonus episode series, coming to you once a month until the launch of our second full season later this year, on October 10th to be precise. Hey, that's less than four months away. Which means that as we speak, there's an excellent chance that right now, somewhere in the United States, a member of the Family Ghost production team is trying to persuade a guard at a state prison to let them take a backup recorder through security, sleeping in a converted gas station in a northwestern town that only has six hotel rooms, or researching the political climate of Venezuela in the late 1950s. Things are happening. Including right here on this bonus episode. As you've hopefully noticed by now, what happens on these bonus episodes is that we feature producers on the team sitting down with artists and journalists whose work inspires them to tell stories like the ones we feature here on our show. And this week, you'll hear producer Verilyn Williams in conversation with best-selling author Tayari Jones. Plus, we'll bring you the latest installment in a series we call Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. This week on Wild Card Wednesday, you'll hear about an entire subplot we had to cut from our season one premiere, No Brown Spots, a sequence during which your humble ghost host came the closest I ever have to believing I was in the presence of a real ghost. But first, a word about the one and only Verilyn Williams. Words mean things. I love words. Okay. Words mean things is exactly the sort of reminder Verilyn never fails to provide when we're reviewing scripts for episodes of our show. As someone whose writing style was once described as rococo bullshit by a former boss, Verilyn's ability to identify the heart of a story and clear away the words obscuring its pulse is invaluable. She's also a master of using ambient sound to give a story a sense of immersion. Anytime you hear the natural sound of whatever environment we were recording in during season one, there's a good chance that was because of a note from Verilyn. And then there's Verilyn's laugh. <laughs> As you'll hear, Verilyn has things to say about joy in this episode, and I'll leave it to her to do so with greater eloquence than I'm capable of. But I just want to add that when it comes to amorphous creative challenges, like turning family secrets into compelling radio documentaries, there's a difference between having a positive attitude and genuinely cherishing every moment of the process. That second one is what Verilyn does. Her delight in the narrative opportunities of every episode in season one was palpable at every moment of our collaboration. And frankly, I don't know if we would have made it through without it. Of course, Verilyn's sunny approach to her work doesn't mean she isn't thinking seriously about its implications. She cares deeply about her subjects and her sources something I got to witness firsthand with her leadership of the reporting on A Spirit of Vengeance, our season one episode with storyteller Jill Chenault. As Verilyn's about to tell you, this was a project she felt an instant connection with. From the moment I met Jill over Skype, I knew I wanted to hear her story. Hi. Hi. How are you? It's good to meet you too. Wait, I'm going to flip you over. Okay. Okay. That's and luckily for me, it didn't take much to get Jill to share. They used to talk about Ann Hortense like she had a tail. They said she was mean and that she had always been mean. And they said that she would try to, one time she tried to spank one of them with a hairbrush. And they were like, you are crazy. You're not our mother. 
With no effort at all, Jill not only shared the intimate details of her own family stories, but I also knew that I was getting a chance to zoom into a period of American history I frankly don't hear enough about. I mean, we, when we migrated, we tended to migrate wherever the trains went. And wow. the trains tended to go due north and south. Wasn't a whole lot of east and west <laughs> stuff going on. Okay. So most of the people that I know here are from, their people are from Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama. And when I was in New York, it seemed like everybody there had folks in the Carolinas and Virginia mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Maryland. So I think we just kind of went. Okay. Know, During the many hours I spent listening to Jill tell her story. I had what I could only describe as out-of-body moments of reflecting on the uniqueness of what I was getting to do. I got to produce a story about the Great Migration, when more than 6 million black people from the rural South moved up north. And more importantly, this story was told from the perspective of Jill, a black woman whose family was a part of that history. My deep desire to amplify stories like Jill's is something my sister friend Robin Borlon and I talk about all the time. I think there's a way in which the secrets of black women's lives, the family secrets, the dirty laundry, is like hidden in in the open most Mm. of the time. Mm. And it's just a matter of how those stories are told or not told, what versions of it survive, which pieces of it are kept. Robin is a writer, a professor at the University of Alabama, and a member of the Crunk Feminist Collective. We've spent hours discussing why black women have to be responsible for telling their own stories. Hey V, I uh, just got out of the shower, which is why I'm all greased up, cocoa butter on my face, and got a load of laundry Hi, going. Hi <laughs> uh, So good to hear from you, to see your face. I uh, just got back from seeing my third screening of Wakanda, a.k.a. Black Panther, and it was glorious. Robert and I talk every day, and I know what you're thinking. Who has time for that these days? But we do it through a video walkie-talkie app called Marco Polo. Hey, V, I am just now getting back to you from the other day. I hope that you um, weathered the storm and that everything is good your way. I finally got that dreaded three pages done. I think I might even got like three and a half pages. Good morning. Um, first of all, I love you hearing you talk about like being inspired, being in those spaces and sharing spaces. I need more of that in my life. <laughs> Black good <women>. morning. Um, <laughs> I was looking at your video. You are so New York. Um, it is so New York. It's such an act of listening right. that I don't, yeah. I don't think I, any, I've ever experienced <laughs> in any other forum. Yeah, and I think the other thing we talk about with that, with that app is how it, it marks it, it records mm-hmm. it, it holds it, so you can yes. go back to it, right? Because oftentimes we're talking, and then I'll be like, yeah, girl, there was something else you said I wanted to respond to. I'm going to have to go back and listen <laughs> yes. again. Yes. <laughs> then I'm going to yeah. polo you back and respond to that thing because, yeah, it, it holds time for you. Yeah. And, it rem- and, you know, and I think there's affirmation I get from mm-hmm. that from you that I oftentimes will go back for. I will listen yeah. to get to, a, you know, um, an affirmation that I needed, a reminder yes. that I'm visible, that I matter, that everything is going to be okay, that, you know, mm. um, and we sometimes miss that. We don't always get that. Yep. And if we do, it, it happens so fast and we can't always rewind it and go back. Yes, yes. And, and that's the power of recording stories, not just telling them. Because you tell them and they're gone. Mm-hmm. But when you record them, you can go back. Ugh. 
that's like my life my life my life's work <laughs> like it also like you know like holding it like it's real you're visible you know and so much of mm -hmm. you know what it means to be not to get all dramatic but what it means to be a black person in america so much of it feels like the constant controlling of it like the the silencing of it Since Robin and I talk so often about how much black women's stories mean to us personally, I naturally wanted to know what she thought about Joe's story. It resonated because I think it was something about the ways in which she talked about the layeredness of her experience, the retelling of these stories, the matrilineal, generational impact of these stories, specifically on the women. You know, women were centered, the women in her family were centered, and she was, you know, there's a way in which she talked about how she was a part of this story even before she was born, mm -hmm. um, and how the women who are no longer with us, you know, their experiences survive through these stories that are retold, and the ways in which these stories are passed down to other women as a way of teaching them how to behave mm -hmm. in certain contexts, how to react and respond to trauma, Mm -hmm. um, and injustice, even when it's within your family. Here's the thing. Like it or not, depictions of black stories on film and TV play a huge role in what people assume about black people, especially black women. Take every movie you've ever watched about the civil rights movement, for example, and then compare that to Ava DuVernay's Selma, which centers civil rights leader Diane Nash, a name most people aren't familiar with. And it's not just like, okay, this one person's story, right? It's not the um, charismatic leader story, right? It's about the people. And I think like that's often right. what happens when black women get to tell the story um, that right. I often get frustrated when I'm, when I'm watching other things. Absolutely. I think that black women, our perspective is so panoramic that, you know, we have a peripheral view of things. And that's the part that I think comes out when black women are telling stories. We're telling what we see from the front all the way around. You know, it's mm -hmm. almost like a, you know, a panoramic view. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm telling you what I can see clearly, but I'm also telling you the gray areas, the, the things that are fuzzy, but they're there. Mm -hmm. So that you know that they're there. And then if you turn... You know, like, so if this story turns to the right, then maybe I can give you another another part of the story. And you can, and, and so the focus changes instead of staying on one person. Changing people's focus is vital when it comes to black women's experiences. And I'm super conscious of this, particularly on social media. If I wanted to, every day I can share videos on Instagram of black women and girls being brutalized or killed because they didn't want to talk to a stranger on the street. Yes, that's reality. But so are my moments of uncontrollable laughter when me and my girls get together, or when I get to buy my niece a cocoa cherry icy like I used to get when I was her age, or when Nuck If You Buck comes on at a barbecue and my friends from the Midwest go ham. My moments of hashtag joy that's what I wish would show up in the culture more often. The narrative that black women are, that, that there's something wrong with us and we need to be fixed, is tired and old and mm -hmm. played out. Mm -hmm. And it has never been true. And I call bullshit. I think it's a privilege to understand that and to 
and to be able to see through, like watch a Tyler Perry uh, a movie and be able to think of it critically and be like, actually, I reject this definition of what right. I am, you know. And so I do recognize right. that, um, you know, there's a, not everyone gets to 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 see past the trauma <laughs> or to see past, right. you know, the little ebbs and flows that they recognize within their own lives. And unfortunately, and here's the other unfortunate reality, is they don't have not not only do they not have the the language necessarily or the or the tools to critically engage it they don't have any other options yeah black people go to tyler perry films because what else do what other options do they have if they want to see black people on the big screen they don't have any or historically because i think that is shifting a little bit you know yeah. with black panther and and duvernay but you know but historically in a year, if you get a film by a black person or with black people, it's Tyler Perry. Okay. I hear the people that credit Tyler Perry for at least constantly telling black stories and employing black actors. But does every quote-unquote strong black woman need to be broken down and saved by the love of a working-class black man? That reoccurring trope has always felt unbelievable to me. To me, the truth lies in the specific details. Like one of my favorite moments in Jill's story. We were raised to be sedity black people. Seriously, we were. Even Austin Riddick had a saying that he meant to make the family mantra. God made nothing finer than a Riddick. We were raised to be sedity. I <laughs> yes. love that. And, yes. um, you know, there was a moment in which me and Sam was talking. We were like, we're not going to explain that. You know, and I think like cause in our heads, we we both come from, you know, public radio where we probably would have been. We would have had an editor that would have told us to explain that. And we made mm-hmm. a conscious choice to, like, not do that with Jill because Jill is, like, such a master storyteller that's centering her experience. So, you know, we're not here. Like, if you if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. It wasn't for you. It's okay. You'll miss it and it'll be fine. Right. <laughs> and, you yeah, like, not having to footnote things yes. that aren't necessarily... Um, translatable and when you explain it it's like you're not you're saying that you're not like the ideal audience the person that you're doing this for won't understand it right whereas like as you just said black women will get it or like you know or black people whoever who will get it will get it so i think it's so important that in any in every way that we can as black women that we affirm each other's stories Mm -hmm. as they are told exactly the way they're told Um, instead of trying to water them down or make them pretty or, you know, fix them. Let me fix this for you. No, I said Mm -hmm. what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Robin, thank you for affirming my daily (laughs) stories every single day. Um, It's definitely a joy, and I'm so grateful for it every single day. I think I tell you this constantly. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's completely reciprocated. I appreciate you. Of all the books I've read recently, the one that's made me think the most about my conversations with Robin is An American Marriage by Tayari Jones. It's a story about newlywed Celestial and Roy. Roy is arrested for a crime he didn't commit and is sentenced to 12 years in jail. And during that time in prison, Celestial takes comfort in Andre, a childhood friend and Roy's best man at their wedding. The novel is told from the perspective of all three main characters, And they all love Celestial. Yes, most importantly, Celestial loves herself. One moment in the book that will forever stay with me 
comes during a series of letters Roy and Celestial write each other while he's locked up. They are arguing, and Roy writes, Dear Celestial, I'm innocent. And in response, Celestial writes, Dear Roy, I'm innocent too. Since finishing An American Marriage, I've wanted to talk to Tayari Jones about the vitality of black women telling their own stories. So when Sam asked me what I wanted to do for this bonus episode of Family Ghosts, I knew this was my chance. I think everyone tells their own story. I don't think that's unique to us, but I think that as black women, when you tell your own story, it does feel like you're in opposition to the culture. So this act of telling one's own story, which should just come as natural as breathing, feels like such an uphill thing. Tayari is eloquent, sarcastic, and remarkably at ease given her newfound fame since Auntie Oprah made An American Marriage part of her book club. Tayari's reached a level of fame she never expected, which we'll talk about later on. But meeting her, you'll never know it. The reason? Black women mentors. When I was a very young writer, Nikki Giovanni invited me to her home just out of the blue, to spend the weekend. And she wanted to talk to me about what she saw as my rising career. I had only written one book, and, you know, very few people read it. And I was surprised, and so I went there. And she gave me a long talk about understanding your relationship with your readers, that if you take care of them, they will take care of you. And not in a fame way, but in a way of you write the books that, your core readers find affirming, and they will affirm you back. And she says, those women will be with you. Trends come and go, but those women Mm. who are your core readers, she says, those women will come to your funeral. Mm. And so I've just thought a lot about being in my world in a way that makes me feel protected and safe where I can be vulnerable on the page and vulnerable in person, but still also feel completely looked after. Another of Tayari's mentors is Pearl Cleach, whose career as an author was also transformed by Oprah's book club. Tayari remembers one of the first questions Pearl asked her. She asked me, what are you thinking? And I got ready to tell her and she said, no, write it down. Mm. And just that question, what are you thinking? It made me understand my own mind and thoughts in a different way. Before then, I had not taken myself seriously as a writer or a thinker. And I've said this before. I really think that when you're a young girl, because I was 17 at the time, people divide young girls into two categories good girls and bad girls. Mm -hmm. And if you like to read that, people think it makes you good. They think it's about your temperament, not about what you're actually reading, what you're actually writing. It just means that you're bookish. And this is one of the many ways that I think that girls' talents and gifts are not nurtured. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you've heard, I think, is it Chris Rock? One of those guys saying that as a father, your only job. He says, keep your daughter off the pole. Sometimes I'm walking with my daughter, I'm talking to my daughter, I'm looking at her, I'm pushing her stroller, and sometimes I pick up and I just stare at her and I realize my only job in life is to keep her off the pole. (laughs) Keep my baby off the pole. I mean, they don't grade fathers, but if your daughter's a stripper, you fucked up. And people think that's really funny, but 
And it's hyperbolic, but in a way, it is the way people look at girls. Mm -hmm. I felt like if you're reading, you're not on the pole. But no one says, so what do you think about what you've read? Yes. It's a... And when I went to college, I went to Spelman College, which is a historically black women's college in Atlanta. It was the first time in my life I had been taken seriously. At this point of the conversation, I couldn't wait to talk to Tiari in detail about an American marriage. And specifically, the experience of telling the story from Celestial's point of view, who, in my mind, was the main character in the novel. But Tiari's response took me by surprise. It's funny. You say that she's the main character, And I actually think that Roy is the main character. And it's really funny, though, because when I first wrote the novel, I wrote it all from Celeste's point of view. I was really interested in the conundrum of of Celeste. I mean, Mm. she is a woman. She's a newlywed. She's as she says, I was dancing the line between bride and wife. She's only been married 18 months and her husband has been wrongfully incarcerated. And the question is whether or not she should kind of suspend her life in in amber in a way. Be the ride or die chick. Yes, to be right, to ride or die. And I wrote the whole thing from her point of view, and I received such incredible pushback mm. from all my early readers. Like everyone, it just upset genre expectations so much mm. that if you say this is a novel about a woman and her husband is wrongfully incarcerated, people assume that it's all about her brave fight to free her man, kind of like Aaron Brockovich type, yeah. like one woman against the system. Yeah. And when I say it's about a lot of things, it was just, it was so contrary to to culture that I got so much pushback. And so I decided that I would give Roy's voice Mm. space as well. And I had, there were two things about it. Okay. I read a lot of novels by white women who, for whatever reason, were dissatisfied in their marriages and they decided to leave those marriages. And in those novels by white women, you feel like, yes, yes, girl, get free. But the only novels I could find by black women about leaving marriages, the marriages were horrific. Yeah. They Like the color purple, you know, they're being beaten, all of this. It was like get free to save your life. Yes. Where the white women's novels were like get free to explore who you really are. Mm. And then I thought, well, does this mean that that getting free to discover your own self is a, a like almost like a luxury that black women cannot afford. We're doing it for the race. Right. Like your, your marriage is for the race. Everything you do is mm-hmm. for the race. And with Celestial, with her husband basically being a hostage to the state, her husband is incarcerated because of racism. And it seems that the way that she can support him is through stopping her own life, almost like a tribute to him, because Mm -hmm. it's not as though her chastity or fidelity is going to get him out. It's almost like a a monument Mm. that she she is asked to be a living monument to his struggle. And it's not that she doesn't love him, that she doesn't care deeply, but is her own life further collateral damage to what has happened to him. It's a very tricky thing because with incarceration, mass incarceration, or even just one individual incarceration, the conversation very much is of women as kind of emotional support system. Are you going to wait on him? Um, But the real thing is that, you know, statistically, women, black women in particular, spend so much money providing support for husbands, boyfriends, sons in prison. It's a major cause of black women's 
um, poverty mm. is the incredible cost mm. generated by, you know, the prison industrial complex. That is a real collateral damage. So the woman on the outside who is seen as this emotional support it's really the breadwinner of that family, but she doesn't feel like the breadwinner. Like, mm-hmm. it's a very, very tricky dynamic, I think. In An American Marriage, Tiari presents the emotional struggles of two black people as fundamentally American, while also being uniquely specific to the black American experience. It's like the fact of his incarceration makes everything about their marriage turned up to 50. And this is the way that structural racism impacts people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like the question she has, which is, how much of your life do you devote to your relationship? How much do you devote to yourself? That is a question that all kinds of people face. But because they are black, and they are facing this racist system, everything becomes symbolic. Everything becomes so large that your own individual choice is bigger than that. Mm. I mean, there's a moment even for Celestial when she is um, in college and she's volu- doing some volunteer work and her mentor says to her, have a baby, save the race. You know, and everyone laughs like it's a joke, but it's not really a joke. Mm. There is this sense that black women through adherence to very traditional gender roles will save the race, will save the day. And also that the act of motherhood for black women is revolutionary. Yes, that motherhood is revolutionary. To be a wife is revolutionary. All these, in the context of racial injustice, the ability to carry out what the kinds of gender roles that second wave feminism rebelled against when applied to black women then becomes a triumph. But they are just as confining as they are when they were critiqued by second wave feminism. Or, you know, it makes me think of, you know, when you read Betty Friedan, the feminine mystique Mm -hmm. about how the women, the white women who were educated but became housewives, how they were bored, et cetera, and didn't feel like their potential was being met. But if a black woman is a housewife, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, there's a sense of now she's as Roy says, you know, his dream was always for his wife not to work, that he's going to sit her down, as they, as the old people say. <laughs> and that is a triumph yeah. in his context. So this is why I think it's gender, it's so tricky um, with black people because the question is, do what does it mean to be free? Mm-hmm. And what would it really mean to divest from kind of an idealized black patriarchy? Did you watch, did you watch Black Panther? I did. I did. I saw it twice. I really enjoyed it. I saw it five times. (laughs) But you know what I thought when I finished watching Black Panther? I was thinking that Black Panther kind of was a very romantic idea of a black patriarchy. It Mm. seemed to suggest, you know, when implemented humanely, black patriarchy can work for everyone, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But I I really think that, and I think that is kind of, that is kind of, um, an African-American fantasy, really, where the man is the head, but he's nice about it. Mm -hmm. And he'll ask your opinion. But there is a a comfort in these really archaic structures. Tayari's point about Black Panther made me think about one of my theories. I call it Beyonce feminism. (laughs) (laughs) Explain that to me. What is this? (laughs) Like, you can choose to, you know, I want to cater to you, but also girls rule the world. Or, you know, like, 
Don't hurt yourself, but you know, I the the last song on on Lemonade about forgiveness. You know, like the idea that like I my choice is to let you do what you're doing, but don't don't get it twisted. Like this is still an equal partnership. And I think about that in you know, when I see the women in my the elders in my church, the way that they their marriages work is like there's like a clear like I'm letting him do this. He knows I'm let, and he knows that I'm letting him do this. And it's just like this weird agreement. Um, and then thinking of you're looking at me like I don't know. What you're I don't know. About. I do. Think, I do think that's kind of a, a fantasy. Um, you know, like haven't you heard that all your life? Like the man is the head of the household, but the woman mm-hmm. is the neck, which turns the head. It's just not really true. Mm. It's just not really true. I do think that that is again another conundrum for Black women. This desire to seem powerful like to say this mimics all gender roles we know already but it's not because I'm letting it happen I mean I guess kinda but I think that I don't know I think there's an amount of performance there mm. I mean when things really disrupt power be it gender racial or whatever when things really disrupt that power it's not cute And all these examples are kind of cute Mm. because it's like I'm not shaking. The only reason things aren't shaking up is because I'm choosing not to shake it up. Don't get it twisted. Don't make me shake it up. But I'm not shaking anything up. But I could if I wanted to. Like all of that. That's that push pull with this Mm. desire to have power but not have to really embrace the consequences of that power if used. As Tayari and I talked, I realized what makes Celestial such a compelling character. She's a black woman who dares to claim her own agency. When Celestial chooses herself, there is incredible fallout from that. Because... Her family, her dad basically calls... Yes, her her family, her father, who was so loving to her, is just disgusted with her. Yeah, and calls her names. And he's her father kind of makes this incredible... He is willing to kind of kind of become estranged from his daughter Mm. because that is the thing too when people are daddy's girls and they don't behave in the way that their fathers want most of the time the thing that comes between fathers and daughters is um, sexual questions he doesn't feel his daughter is behaving sexually Mm. the way he thinks is appropriate and there is a hard fallout to that and this is what I'm saying about Mm. what it means to really use your power there will be fallout because female power it's not encouraged. The use of female power is not encouraged in society. And when you do things that actually push back against society, you are not applauded for it. Mm. It's just the truth. So this. So what she did was not. Was she really put her foot down and said, "My life is my own, and I'm going to live it the way that nurtures me as a person, as a woman, as an artist." There's all manner of pushback. Just even when I was writing the book. The fact that I was writing about that created pushback in my own life, that there were a number of people who were mad at me for just entertaining the idea. The idea was so disturbing. And this, I think, is how you know that you are actually challenging society when it does not give you a standing ovation for it. We'll have more with producer Verilyn Williams and author Tayari Jones after the break.
we know there's a lot going on in the news. China is still struggling to contain the coronavirus. It has been a turbulent year in politics around the world. Smoke darkens the skies above Aleppo's countryside. This fire is burning out of control, and it's just 25 miles from Canberra, Australia's But here's the thing. There are also a lot of compassionate people doing amazing things for others every day. How do you pay someone back who saved your life? I am so incredibly grateful that I need to pay it back to her, but also pay it forward to others. Hear those stories on Kind World, a podcast about how acts of kindness can transform lives. That's Kind World. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I was coming of age at a writer where when you would say you wanted to be a writer, people would say, why do you want to be a writer? Do you hate men? Like that was this whole thing where you had to be like, no, 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 I love men. I just want to tell this little story. It's one thing for fictional characters like Celestial in An American Marriage to claim space in the world. For Tayari, doing it in real life has been a journey. Like there was just so mm. much pressure to be a writer as to be a black woman writer was they were like are basically are you are you training to be a race trader like that was it was really in the air and I always thought about the way that I think that it made me as a young woman um kind of afraid like I I understood being a writer to be a socially risky proposition Mm. because of that and I read an article somewhere where the woman said I know what it means to say I'm a feminist and yet, and I like this movie, this album, but it doesn't mean it's feminist because I like it. I think about that too. Like, like I want to. I'm a feminist that loves trap music, and those two things can exist. Like, I could both. Like, being authentically who I am means that I can center my experiences in the work that I do and the stories I tell, and that in itself will upset people. <laughs> or um, I think. African-American women, black women specifically, have been ostracized for like centering ourselves, which sometimes is, is destructive to black men and destructive to white supremacy as a whole. And in the ways in which that I think like that's probably why I feel so deeply that we not only have to tell our stories, but we also have to hold our stories. We also have to document our stories. We have to pass down traditions. And it feels ex- exhausting. And I think that's why I get so much light from writers like you that that do it, that take your time with it. But I guess, like, how do you, like, are you exhausted? Am I exhausted? You know what? I'm not really exhausted. Um, you know how Zora Neale Hurston said, I'm not tragically colored. Mm. I am not tragically, I'm not tragically black and female. I mean, all my life I've enjoyed it so much and I enjoy telling our stories. And I get a lot of, I get so much love and light from my readers and Telling this story was very difficult because of how cha- how much I had to challenge myself in it. Um, I think that all of us, as we strive to become more revolutionary and to change society, we mm-hmm. also have to constantly interrogate ourselves. I do agree with you, like you said, you're a feminist who enjoys trap music, that we do have things we enjoy that don't exactly line up with our ideas. But I also think that one of our goals is to make our lives line up more. Mm-hmm. I feel sometimes that we should not give ourselves a 
get out a problematic free card and be like, it's all in the name of my complexity. (laughs) So I don't have to interrogate myself. If I want to do it, it's fine because I chose it and feminism is about choice. So watch me choose this. Not so much, in my opinion. I think we all have to constantly strive to to get closer to what we want Mm -hmm. and to be gentle with ourselves, though, and acknowledge that, yes, we are only human and we are trying, but we have to try every day. And this book, I found I had some ideas I didn't even know I had myself that I had to challenge about masculinity. So this is where you need to know a little bit more about Roy and Celestial, if you haven't read the book, which I recommend you do. Before getting arrested, Roy was the embodiment of the American dream. He grew up in a working-class Louisiana household, and right after finishing high school, he headed to Atlanta for college and began climbing the ladder of corporate America after he finished. While in college, through his roommate Andre, he meets Celestial, an ambitious, talented artist who comes from an upper-class Atlanta family. Andre knows Celestial because they grew up together. Later, when Roy is wrongly convicted of sexual assault and his sentence is finally overturned after five years, he gets out and discovers that Andre and Celestia are in a relationship. Roy embodies a kind of very kind of traditional construction of manhood, and Andre does not. And I had to work real I had to work on myself as I was writing it and figuring out how to render him and to you know, they say when you write a story and you have two a, a, a character is choosing between two lovers. They both have to be equally attractive. And I had to really think about ways that I could construct this alternative masculinity that felt like it could go toe-to-toe with this traditional masculinity. And it was really a challenge. I didn't realize how many kind of unhealthy ideas that I had in my own head, and I had to mm. use the novel Can you give me to work an them example? out. Like. Roy and Andre get in a fight. Of course, they're going to get in a fight. They, they're they in love with the same woman. They're going to get in a fight. And I had to really ask myself, what does the outcome of this fight mean? Is the winner of the fight the winner of the fight? Mm-hmm. And because that's such a, you know, a, um, masculine measuring stick. I'm going to, you know, who can fight? Who's going to hurt the other? Yeah. And is there a way that I could make holding one's fire, you know, to a ma- an act of radical masculinity. And mm-hmm. I had to figure that out. I had to rewrite it so many times because I realized I was just so steeped in the narrative that for Andre to be my the romantic lead in my head, he had to rise up and fight. But mm-hmm. is violence the only way that I could understand this contest of masculinity? And I had to like, I had to talk to myself. I had yeah. to talk myself off that. Yeah. One of the things I know for sure is that in every good story, the characters go through change. Who they are and or what they know in the beginning must evolve by the end. As a producer, I see how I'm affected by that process while documenting stories like Jill's. But I've never considered how authors of fiction must also evolve in order to create stories like Tayari does. Work that challenges all expectations and social norms. Have you seen this book called The Body is Not an Apology? I, I've seen it. I haven't read it. It's really good. I really recommend it. It's really it's really about radical self-love yeah. and the body. 
but the title, The Body is Not an Apology, is about not offering your body to people to apologize for something you think is wrong with you, something wrong you think you've done. Mm. I feel like Celestial was in that position when Roy comes home from prison. I mean, I want to make sure in our conversation that we don't discount the fact that he has suffered a lot and he has suffered more than she has. She is not in prison with him. Only people in prison are in prison, mm. despite the fact that there is this incredible ripple effect, the collateral effects of incarceration. Nothing but prison is prison. But it's also an established trope. We all know that the way that you sue the man who has been incarcerated is, is through the body, offering the body sex. And it seems it wants so much, but also so little to ask. Mm. And she is his wife. And she's. And even though she's an independent person, she's raised in this culture just like all of us. And the real question then, the symbolic thing becomes whether or not if they have sex, he will use a condom or not. Mm -hmm. And the condom has become like this, this symbol of disrespect, the symbol that she is not his wife. And that's what he really wants is for her to say, he will, does not have to use, prote- I called it protection because she's asking for protection, both literally and metaphorically. And this is a thing that just enrages him and devastates. He's enraged, but he's also devastated mm. because he doesn't want her to feel that she must be protected against him in, in any way. But the question then becomes the calculus of how much does his suffering then entitle him in the rest of his relationships. And that is a hard mm, question because mm. he has suffered a lot. Mm. And it seems... You have a lot of compassion for Roy. I do because, I mean, he is... He was wrongfully incarcerated. Yes. He was minding yeah. his own business yeah. and he got yeah. snatched up. Yeah. I have compassion for all three of them. I have compassion for Roy as a man who was wrongfully incarcerated. I have compassion for Celestial as a woman who, frankly, did not sign up for this and wants to live her life just like I want to live my life. Mm. Why does she have less right to her life than I do? Mm. And I have compassion for Andre, who feels like just because I haven't been wrongfully incarcerated, does that mean I don't have the right to be in love? I have no compassion for Andre. I have, why not? <laughs> I think because it, it, uh, I feel like he was kind of like... Uh, it's going to sound really bad. But like we're laying in wait. Like how he does just, that work in real life? It doesn't. How can you lay in wait? I mean, <laughs> how does that work? Waiting for what? Like he's just, this sounds like, this sounds like the Republicans talking about um, that Obama's mama <laughs> planned this all in advance. <laughs> what? How do you lay in wait? She's just going to lay in wait just in case her husband happens to get wrongfully incarcerated. How does that work? You're right. You're right. <laughs> How does that work? Teach me. Because I got some things I want to wait on. <laughs> but I guess, okay, point taken. <laughs> Here's the thing. Andre and Celeste have known each other all their lives. Mm. And in other stories, as you know, the boy next door is an accepted romantic trope. Mm. But because of Roy's wrongful incarceration, then Andre becomes suspect. He becomes waiting because actually this narrative all centers around what Roy wants. Like Roy, this is not the time Roy is getting out of prison. It's time to talk about that, not talk about what that Celeste has accepted his proposal of marriage. I mean, there is no convenient time. One of the strategies of novel craft is that things should happen when times are not convenient. Mm. But I just don't know when it's really a good time. I just don't know when that would be. I think really what happens with Andre is that Andre really is not accepting 
traditional roles of male dominance. He is the character in the novel, I think, who challenges most what we believe because all the things that Dre is supposedly guilty of all involve the fact that he does not consider Celestial to be property. And mm. and he like he is her friend. He loves her. She's not. He doesn't. You know, she decides to marry Roy. He respects that. He respects her decision. The relationship she wants with him is platonic. They've known each other all their lives. And so he's in a platonic relationship with her. She decides that she is doesn't want to be waiting anymore. And she wants this person. She wants him who she's known all her life. And he is in love with her and they decide to be together and he respects her and they get along. They know each other. Like when she locks, gets mad and locks the door, he says, I know her well enough to know that when a woman locks you out, picking the lock won't get you back in. Like he says, celestial is not something you can steal like a like a wallet or a bright idea. So he wants to be with her and. And, you know, Roy is really mad. Roy feels like I've been wrongfully incarcerated. Yeah. The least you can do is give me back my wife. Like like she could be transferred like property. But mm. she's not property. You can't transfer her. Mm. That's not how it works. I feel like I need to go reread those pages and, and have more compassion for Andre. Yeah, and like when, and- when Roy is beating him up, Andre can't really fight him back. How Roy has the moral high ground in everything he does because of how he suffered. So, like... Just imagine, would anybody be happy if Andre were to beat up, like beat to death the man who's been wrongfully, the man's been wrongfully incarcerated. He comes home and you beat him up. You can't like you can't fight him. You can't fight him. He's and he just I mean, that's the tricky thing about Roy is that he has this eternal moral high ground. And poor Celestial. Everybody else, if someone's been in love with you since the day they were born and you end up with them, everyone else says good for you. But because mm. Celestial and Roy, it becomes like, that's too easy. You you should suffer more. Why not just have the love next door? She says, is this love or is this convenience? And Andre says, love is supposed to be convenient. Wow. He says <laughs> that love is supposed to be convenient. And that she deserves that. She deserves that love. She deserves that uncomplicated love. She deserves it. She's been through a lot. I'm like, let that girl have something. I think it speaks to, like, do black women get to be carefree? I do believe black women do should be allowed to be carefree. Yes. But I think, and, I, and the more I'm ta- saying it out loud, I think that, wow, I had, like, my own baggage that I brought to this that I hadn't even considered until, like, right now. And I think, like, maybe that's how what I'm, that's my, what I'm responding to with, with Celeste. Like, I, Celestial, like, I want... Like when you put it that way, of course I want her to have the carefree love, the you know, the boy next door. But here's the thing. This is what I want to think about. There are two steps to this idea of rethinking the way we understand gender, an intersection of black patriarchy and gender. The same thing that allows us to accept Celeste and her shaking off of the established gender roles for her we also have to learn to love men who also shake off what's expected of them. Mm. So Andre and Celeste have that both in common. Neither of them is interested in the rigid gender expectations set out in front of them. But for Celestial, it means being more assertive and aggressive and more self-interested than we're accustomed to. And for Andre, it's the opposite because we're trying to balance the scales and when we see it in Andre, it's just so jarring to see a black man not follow that script 
it's just really jarring and confusing and it takes a while to get used to it, which is even with me with writing it, like I was saying, I had to think a lot about Andre and understand his point of view, but he wants to live in a different way. His father is hyper-masculine, old school, and Andre has seen in his own life and in the life of his mother how that did not nurture his spirit or his mother's spirit. So Andre has decided to try and live in a different way. But back to our earlier point, when people are actually living in a different way, it is jarring and people do not give you a standing ovation for it. It takes a while for people to come to understand it as a new and legitimate way of being in the world. Mm. Yes. I think, it, you know, it's around the, you know, the idea, like one of the things that I remember I had an ex-boyfriend that used to call me selfish. And I remember it just being like such a painful blow. And now I kind of see it as like, well, fine, I'm self, you know, so I do... I, but I, I also know that there are parts of me that always, I, I'm actively dating right now. So all the, everything you're saying is also making me think of my own life and like the way, like the things I think about when I choose a partner or the things that I don't, um, the things that like turn me off right away. And I think I'm obsessed with protection and I've been trying to challenge myself around like, what does protection look like for me? And like, how, and like when you, what you just said made me think about the ways in which, um, a man that cha- like the, the I would want a, a man that like reads the same books I do like has feminist you know th- thought in all these different ways but a man that does that m- might mean that he isn't going to be the typical ideal of protection that I have in my head of like what it means for a man to be able to protect me and so first of all you just this is a lot of fodder <laughs> for my therapy session tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> it's it's tricky though you know I was look you know I'm a tall woman mm-hmm. right and you know I'm I'm five foot I'm five almost five ten five nine and a half I'm not a skinny person and you know all this idea of like how women don't have to be small mm-hmm. you know all of this and I had to actually train myself not to require a man to be tall mm-hmm. because how can I say that I have the right not to be tiny mm. and still be loved, but say, but you, sir, need to be <laughs> six six. Like it, you have to change both. You have to change. Wow. You have to change them both. And so I started, um, like, gradually accepting men who were who were not as tall. Like, you know, I've, I've worked my way all the way down to like cheekbone height. That's as far <laughs> as I've gotten. But I'm aware that yeah. the same, the same things, the the same standards that kept me kind of feeling out as an outsider and imprisoned also affect men and you have to Mm. you have to do it on both sides or else you are not really free the emotional journey Tayari takes with her characters is for me what makes her writing special she feels everything they're feeling along the way and she told me that sense I'm getting is a direct outgrowth of her creative process I don't outline I write the book to find the answer to the question I'm asking myself. That's why it takes me so many years, Mm -hmm. because I'm asking, like in this novel, we're looking at the way interpersonal relationships, family relationships intersect with mass incarceration. Like that's huge question, the ripple effects, the trickle down, the collateral. I don't know the answer to these questions. And so I spent six years asking myself. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the people are going to do. And I just... I inhabit them and I put them in uncomfortable situations and I just try and see what happens, but I don't control it. 
that's the part that I think most people don't understand when they hear me say that black women have to tell their own stories. The fact that we're not just telling them to our readers or our listeners, we're also telling them to ourselves. You know how we say we have to tell our own stories, and I do believe that, obviously, but I don't go into it knowing what story I'm telling. I write to find my own story, and I happen to be telling it as I find it. But it takes a long time to do it that way. (laughs) And it also puts you in very uncertain territory because you don't know if you're going to end up with a book that's going to resonate. Mm. Because you could accidentally get up in there and find out some really troubling answer, and you've Mm. got a very troubling book. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. It's so Wild Card Wednesday. It's so Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wild Card Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. So Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. So Wild Card Wednesday. Ghost Family, as you may recall, our first season opened with a story we called No Brown Spots about a woman named Kayla whose family home burned down under mysterious circumstances. For Kayla, a lot of that mystery centered on her mom. Nikki, a complicated woman with whom Kayla had a complicated relationship right up until Nikki died, not long after the fire. I was intrigued by Kayla's story from our first phone call. In particular, the moment when she told me about Nikki's family in Watertown, New York. They're very peculiar people. My mother is one of six children. She uh, is the only one who ever got married and have kids, and then all of her other siblings still live at home with their mother in a house um, in Watertown, New York, but they bought another house. They bought another house in like the late 80s, early 90s, and no one really lives there. It's like a weird staging house that's sort of like a museum that they decorated, and like anytime they have people in town, they entertain there, but it's a few blocks away from the house they actually live in, Um, but it's like not, it's a very peculiar thing, um, and it's it's like they keep the Christmas tree up year-round. They're weird people. Something about that house and the people who lived there seemed like a key to understanding Kayla's story. And I was looking forward to the moment we finally got to visit, which came late last summer. You can turn right in here. That's it? This is it. Whoa, that house totally looks haunted. Right. Oh my goodness. Get ready, here's the carriage house. I'm scared. I'm scared they're going to cast a spell on me. (laughs) This is a seriously creepy house. Wait till you get inside. The Christmas house, as we came to call it in our story meetings, was enormous, set well back from the street on this broad, perfectly manicured lawn. It had the aura of an alien spaceship. The paint was a dark, murky brown, and the front porch was made of thick, imposing stones. 
There were huge windows on every floor, all of which had the curtains drawn. And inside the house, we discovered rows and rows of display cases with eyeless porcelain figures, a Christmas tree, as promised, fully decorated and lit up in the late July heat, and, unfortunately, a retinue of reclusive relatives who demanded that I turn off my audio recorder. Which means you'll have to take my word for it about this next part. The denizens of the Christmas house served us root beer and lectured us about the evils of socialism for a while, neither of which we'd asked for, although the root beer was delicious. After about 40 minutes, the conversation turned to Nikki, Kayla's mom, with whom the Christmas house residents had grown distant over the years. She was ungrateful and selfish, they told us. And what's more, they added, once she moved away from upstate New York, she didn't even come back to visit preferring instead to send the family bizarre gifts that seemed to flaunt her newfound wealth and prosperity on the West Coast. As an example, they pointed to an elaborate ceramic clock on the mantel, featuring a clock face ringed by four nude figures hoisting a golden baby aloft. The moment they started talking about the clock, it started to chime. We sat quietly in the ornate room, sipping our root beer under the eyeless watch of the porcelain figures, listening to the chimes as the room fell otherwise silent. A few moments later, without a word of acknowledgement, the Christmas house residents resumed their harangue. I listened, but I couldn't stop staring at the clock. It felt like Nikki was listening too. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lai, Lindsay Cradwell, and Jacob Smith. Our story editor is Michaela Bly, our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks to Tayari Jones for joining us this week, and to Verilyn Williams, who is sadly unable to work with us on this season of the show. Verilyn, thank you for your careful ears, your tireless commitment to narrative clarity, and your irrepressible joy. None of this could have happened without you. Our Wildcard Wednesday theme is by Evan Viola and Dave Van Ronk, featuring the vocal stylings of Shamaya Williams, Jacob Smith, Nicole Bunces, Lori Tobiason, Lindsay Cradwell, Shelby Jordan, and Emily Mulholland. For links to all of our episodes, bonus and otherwise, to find us on Twitter and Instagram, or to send us a note, visit our website, familyghosts.panoply.fm. We'll be back in one month for another peek behind the Family Ghosts curtain. And until then, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Ghost family, thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of what we do. Today, I need to ask for your help. This is something that will only take five minutes of your time. Please go to spokemedia.io slash survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. It really helps us find advertisers, which helps us keep this show in your podcast feed. 
That's spokemedia.io slash survey. And thank you.